Hello, and welcome back to the Book on Fire podcast. Hello, hello. We're sitting here. It's actually snowing outside right now. We're watching the birds come to the feeder. We're heading towards the end of winter here, seems like, but we're still getting some snow. We're getting our winter now. Yeah, a little bit late. Seems like. But better late than never. (laughs) Yeah. Today we're going to talk about chapter three, which is called, of Caliban and the Witch, which is called The Great Caliban, The Struggle Against the Rebel Body. And this chapter is super interesting and we're excited to talk about it. Yeah, the struggle against the rebel body, right? In this one, we talk about some more of the attempts to remake the working people into more compatible cogs in the capitalist work machine. Yes. And uh, we're going to talk about one of our favorite boogeymen, which is the Enlightenment, the Age of Enlightenment. But it's going to be a minute before we get there. There's a concept that we were feeling like we wanted to bring up and define now. It's a term that's associated with Marx, but it's not strictly a Marxist term. The term is the bourgeoisie. And what's more important for people to understand about the bourgeoisie is not like that this is a word that you need to use or something, but more like it's a word that describes a certain class of people in European society who were gaining a lot of strength and power in this time period. And we want to be able to point to this development and talk about this specific class of people more concisely. And so maybe on this episode or in the future, uh, you might hear us use the word bourgeoisie. In the past on the podcast, we've talked about capitalist class or sometimes the ruling class. But right now we want to be a little bit more specific especially because the bourgeoisie are central to what we're going to be talking about in this podcast today and some of the developments around the age of reason and the enlightenment. So, so the bourgeoisie, it's a French word, but it's, it's spilled over into English and it originally, it originally comes from roots that just mean the people who lived in towns. And so it goes back to the middle ages where it means that and towns and cities were distinct from the countryside and the feudal estates by being like centers of commerce, right? And commerce is kind of the key word there because the bourgeoisie are the class that are associated with the new rising capitalist economic sphere that's coming into being at this time. And so these are people who in the Middle Ages and the feudal times would have typically, yeah, lived in towns and been entrepreneurs, merchants, maybe bankers, you know, people who handled money and people who were involved in what commerce was going on during that time period. When we talked about how feudal society was made up, you know, there's the church and the clergy and all of that sphere. And then there's the nobility the landed nobility at the height of which was the actual royalty. And then there was the serfs. And then the merchants and the people in the town were kind of not a very formalized part of medieval life, but definitely had a role to play. Uh, But we would see that role become greatly, greatly expanded in the time period that Federici is talking about in the book. Largely due to the colonial expansion. Yeah, yeah. In the Marxist conception of society, it's the bourgeoisie that comes to more and more own the means of production. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that own the machines, that own 
increasingly own a lot of land, you know, although originally, right, it's the church and the nobility that owns most of the land, but through a lot of developments, the rising merchant class and the bourgeoisie comes to own a lot of land. And also, once industrialization happens, they have earned the capital, earned is maybe a charitable word, expropriated mm-hmm. the capital to be able to, you know, invest in the creation of the factories and the machines and the engines of economic production in the modern sense. So, you know, since we're talking about the rise of capitalism, the rise of the bourgeoisie is intimately tied with the rise of capitalism. This is the era in which the concerns and the interests of the bourgeoisie would increasingly define what society was like, how society is composed, because they had interests that were different than the interests of the nobility and the old classes, the old ruling classes. And the revolutions at the end of the 18th century, including the American Revolution in the country where I live and was raised, uh, that threw off the colonial powers and the French Revolution very famously were uh, revolutions largely conducted by the bourgeois class, by this like middle class, although now there's a lot of upper class bourgeois people. I mean, in fact, like the ruling class in a country like America is composed entirely of the bourgeoisie, you know, like all of the presidents that America has ever had are members of this class of people that were uh, rising in prominence in this time period in the 1500s, 1600s, and 1700s. So America is a thoroughly bourgeois society. Right? There's not truly an aristocracy here. So that's the definition of the bourgeoisie. There's a lot of different other baggage around the bourgeoisie as far as what their cultural values were and what their lifestyle was like and what kinds of morality they practiced and all of this um, type of stuff that you might see referenced in reading here and there. But that's good enough for now. That definition is good enough for now. But now we're going to move on to to just what's going on here in this chapter and where where we left off chapter two it had there's a lot of different stuff going on in chapter two there's a lot of different content a lot of different historical developments were being documented um, mm-hmm. in chapter two but a lot of it has to do with you might remember chapter two involved the enclosures and the expropriation of land and so peasants being driven off of their land base. And the rulers and the emerging bourgeoisie grabbing up all of their resources, including land and privatizing it all, right? And the capitalist class hoped that the former peasants would become workers on their privatized farms. I'm just going to talk about Europe for right now because this chapter is mainly centered in Europe. Yes. Uh, in their emerging you know, cottage industries and then eventually actually centralized factories. These emerging capitalists were trying to force the peasant population into this wage-labor relation, which we discussed at length last time, where men were the privileged wage-earning class and so on and so forth. But basically, the people weren't having it. They didn't want to be part of this relation. They didn't want to center their lives around work. And it was very likely for the displaced masses to just turn to vagabondage, which is just wandering around and living 
day by day, mm-hmm. like basically, or become criminals or take to gambling as a way of potentially supporting themselves. You know, all of these, all of this stuff, as precarious as it is, was preferable to so many of the former peasants than submitting to work discipline and a wage job. And this is just a center on the men. The women, too, were resistant in their own ways. And a lot of blood was spilled trying to get these people to conform. Federici talks about what was called the bloody laws, which are these laws that would basically round up from what I, from high understanding just from the book is that they would round up vagabonds and beggars and kind of consign them to a job. Right. Like that was their sentence was (laughs) forced labor. Yeah. I'm not sure why they were called the bloody laws, uh, but that was one strategy. And another strategy was just to round up vagabonds and kill them. Right. You know, there's a statistic in here that during Henry VIII's reign alone in England, 72,000 people were hung of this riffraff. And that's like outside of the hangings that happened as part of the witch trials. Right. This is 72,000 paupers who are not conforming to the new system who were killed in over like about a 40 year period. I think it was like 38 years. Yeah. So that's a huge number for sure. Right. Right. This exterminationist type of policy was not great for the ruling class either because they actually needed people to work instead of just to not exist. Yeah. It's just what it took to make people do it. Yeah. Or at least Um, that's what they thought. Right. But it didn't even hardly work. Like Mm -hmm. that's part of it is that expropriating people from their land and their means of subsistence was not enough violence and hangings and making examples of people who refused to comply was not enough. They instituted, we talked about this some last time too, but there was all these laws in various places that variously would ban gatherings in public places, ban the festivals. They shut down taverns, public baths, made gambling illegal and games in general, but especially games of chance. Mm Mm-hmm. Everything that could be a diversion and a source of sustenance outside of money and the wage was getting like enclosed on, or I mean like foreclosed, like shut down. Yeah. She said that, um, I think there were like 161 different crimes that were punishable by death. Mm-hmm. And most of them were examples of life that was just not part of capitalist production and outside of like, the control of the new system. Yeah. So any sort of like informal resistance could be punishable by death. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So this ratcheting up of the penalties for basically undisciplined behavior of any kind that didn't conform to people just being cogs in a machine. Non-productive behavior. Non-productive behavior. Exactly. I think, yeah, she uses that word, I think, explicitly in there. Unproductive behavior. Um, so you can see like where this whole thing is tending to, <laughs> which is that all of a sudden, <laughs> and we say suddenly in kind of deep time or whatever, but it emerged over a couple hundred years, all of a sudden productivity becomes the central value <laughs> of bourgeois society. And the bourgeoisie is like starting to be able to have enough power to set the rules for what society is about. You know, because even in the feudal times, we can't say this enough, you know, even in the feudal times, the peasants were exploited 
uh, and they had to work for the Lord. But it was basically people worked enough to have what they needed, mm-hmm. you know, and they had to work for the Lord. So the Lord didn't have to work and the Lord's people and the nobility didn't have to get their hands dirty. But there was not until the period we're talking about here, there was not this idea that there's no ceiling on what's enough, mm-hmm. you know, that that just acquiring money and stuff endlessly could be a goal placed in the center of life. So, yeah, but capitalism was going to change all of that. But they needed to get people to conform, mm-hmm. right? Like that, they, especially in the time period where, yeah, th- this is still true today, but especially before there was a lot of like machinery like tractors and factory machines and robots and all the stuff that we have now, human power was the power that made the capitalists money. And so they had to get the people to submit to it, to submit to that regime. And the point of everything I'm saying here is that violence and expropriation was not enough. Part of what was becoming necessary was for regular people just to have a different idea of what life was about and what a life was for and what having a body was for. They needed to kind of invent a new kind of person, a person that was more like a machine to basically do the work of machines to just crank out commodities. Right. And that type of person didn't exist yet. It had to be created. And this chapter is partially the story of the efforts to envision a new kind of person. And they used force, as we already talked about, to work to create this new kind of person. But what they saw early on was that there was going to be a need to actually change the way people think and perceive, which is what you are Mm -hmm. referring to. Mm -hmm. And... Part of that was a wholesale recreation of how individuals conceded themselves and their world. Yeah. And to get into that before we can break down the goal or what changes happened, we should probably talk about what came before and how people as individuals and as groups and as a society conceived of themselves in relation to the bigger world. Yeah. What had to be reformed reformed yeah um and in some cases destroyed and destroyed yeah yeah and why it was incompatible for right. with capitalism really so before the creation of capitalism and during until the mindset was shifted and reformed as davis been saying uh people had much more of a a much more integrated and connected view of life human life on earth people saw themselves and the species as intimately connected to the landscape around them, to the plants and animals around them, and to the cosmos. You know, we're herbalists, and we still use books that come from the period, the Middle Ages, that identify special relations and connections between every herb with a mineral, a planet, um, an element even, and there was a sympathetic energy between all of these forces. And people, everyday people, moved through the world thinking about these associations and working with them. Everyone practiced, well, I mean, I shouldn't say everyone, but most people had in mind a sort of like sympathetic magic that you would make offerings on certain days to get certain things. You would have better luck on some days than others. Some days you might not even want to go outside. And a lot of this had to do with the moon and the movement of the planetary bodies. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, because in this period, the whole world was an enchanted place where everything was an aspect of everything else, mm-hmm. and you couldn't you couldn't separate a part out from the whole. Yeah, and basically, it was a more animist worldview. I mean, the interesting thing here that I think is important to point out is these people were not, for the most part, full on pagans who did not practice Christianity. They were Christians who had some paganism, in right? Them, you know, or who had some animism left, mm-hmm. you know, like that. And I think this is important because we often blame the church for things the Enlightenment is actually responsible for. Uh-huh. Uh, because there was some tolerance. The Protestants were much less tolerant than the Catholic church um, around this, but there was tolerance for incorporating this magical sympathetic view of humans and life and nature. But, and the celestial bodies, of course, but this was incorporated within Christianity. It was part of God's design, and you were just paying attention to that design and kind of tweaking it for your favor. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And that's important, because I think too often um, we have this idea that Christians have never had that as part of their worldview. The kind of, the magical worldview. The magical worldview. Yeah. Was an anathema to Christianity, but it's actually not true. Yeah. The vast majority of people who were practicing magic or what you might call witchcraft in Europe in the Middle Ages and beyond were Christians. Right. right. And a lot of them Catholics. Yes. But Protestants too. Mm-hmm. You know, there was room for animism right. inside of Christianity or alongside of Christianity. It's it's more kind of alongside. Mm-hmm. But can I read? Uh, yeah, read. Be a good time to read, read this quote. quote. Just. A summary of sort of what we're talking about is this passage on page 141 in the book where Federici says, uh, is talking about an animistic conception of nature that did not admit to any separation between matter and spirit and thus imagined the cosmos as a living organism populated by occult forces where every element was in sympathetic relation with the rest. Right. You know, so that's kind of a concise way of talking about the animist worldview. Mm-hmm. And I think we hinted somewhat at what the implications of that would be for it being hard to get people to go to work. Right. Part of it is just the simple idea that that's not what the world is about. Totally. Yeah. You worked to fulfill your needs. Mm-hmm. And it not, wasn't that... Not as an abstraction. Yeah. yeah, not as an abstraction, not as an end in itself. Not this like Protestant work ethic type thing where work is a value uh, in itself. In itself, mm-hmm. you know, you worked to fulfill your needs, and when your needs were fulfilled, life was about other things. Right. So part of the shift here, or I guess the remolding that happened, had to do with the magical thinking, uh, and I mean that in a positive way magical thinking but also yes please yeah but also had to do with a kind of just a breaking of what federici talks about as the natural state of things like the natural state with that uh up until this time period in this economic system people basically plan their work days around when there was enough light to work you know like when the sun was up and when the sun went down and that was it that was the that was your possibility for work, and you probably wouldn't even work that whole time. See, I think that sounds reasonable. Yeah, <laughs> that's more reasonable than the age of reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so there was this relation to just 
the circadian rhythms of the day that would define the work day. Right. And then also, you know, we already mentioned that they had a lot of feast days that were taken away. Mm-hmm. But like the seasonal rhythms? Yeah. So within yeah. within the seasons of the year, you would have certain rhythms. So there would be like, you know, in an agricultural year, those of you, we are very land side, so this is true for us. But spring and summer are super hectic. The days are really long. Um, you do a lot more what might be called work, if you call it work, than you do in the shorter days when there's just less to do because if your life is based around the plant rhythms and the seasons, then there's necessarily going to be times that are busier than others. Mm-hmm. Post-capitalist work enforcement, all of the times are very busy. There's not days off and you work as long of hours as possible. Also here, we're pushing up against, or they were pushing up against the limits of the human body. How much could you make a body work? And how little rest could a person get? How little food could a person get and still work mm-hmm. ridiculous hours was also part of the of mm-hmm. the math they were doing, I guess, okay. as they tried to figure out how little inputs they could give what they were now seeing as machine parts yeah, and still have as much production as they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the kind of worldview that capitalism would need to destroy to be able to get those machine parts out of the individuals. Is it? Right. So yeah, there was a long effort to change the way that people saw themselves. Marx talks about the worker in industrial capitalist society as being characterized by a term that he calls alienation. Mm Mm-hmm. I am not enough of a Marxist to be able to really robustly describe Marx's concept of alienation. It's one of it's a major it's a major concept in Marx, um, and there's multiple versions. There are yeah. multiple versions of it too, but Federici talks about this aspect of Marx in this chapter. The alienation that the worker feels in Marx has to do with. The fact that they're alienated from their body and from their body's capacities. Because, you know, I mean, this can get pretty interesting if we wanted to really break it down. Like in property law, alienable means something that can be separated from its owner and kind of sold on the market. So, like, Before there was private ownership of land, land was held in common, but then as part of capitalist development, land became alienable, which means that I could carve out a piece of land and say this belongs to me like it's my property, and I could therefore sell it to you or pass it on to somebody else, and that's called the alienation of land. It's like a legal concept too, but the alienated worker, it's similar because the proletarian the only thing, remember kind of the definition of the proletarian is that the only thing they have that is their property, besides maybe the pack on their back and some tools or something, the only thing that they have that, that is their property, quote unquote, is their labor. And their labor is what their body does. And so the alienation that the worker experiences is this strange dual sense of being where they're a whole and they are in their body and live in their body and your body is what you have, but also the body is their commodity that's somehow separate from them that they can put on the marketplace for sale. And in Marx, because when you're working, 
your labor power is not for you, you've sold it to the boss, then there's alienation that happens in that relationship, you know, because your body and your labor power in that moment is not fully belonging to you because you've rented it out. And so all of this aspect of wage labor is something that Marx really analyzed under the sign of what he called alienation. And Marx talked about the peculiar relationship to self that the fully alienated worker had where they upheld prudence and punctuality and frugality as virtues and were like proud to own a watch Mm -hmm. is a snippet from the chapter that stood out for me, you know, where this clock that you carry around with you that is a symbol of you being hitched to the rhythms of work rather than the rhythms of life is something that the worker would become kind of proud. Mm -hmm. Some workers would become like proud to own. And all of that kind of mindfuck of the worker's sense of self being distorted in these ways because of their necessary conformity to work discipline Mm -hmm. is something that Marx talked about a lot. He was writing in the Mm mid-1800s. And part of what Federici is talking about is that that person that alienated male worker that Marx described didn't get born overnight. Mm -hmm. There was this long process that involved, yes, expropriation and violence, but also the indoctrination Mm -hmm. with new concepts of humanity, of what you were for and what you were about. And there were philosophers stepping up left and right to fill that in. Yes. And so it's interesting to say the least, that in this period of capitalist, rising capitalist hegemony and expansion and colonial expansion, it coincides or it heavily overlaps Mm -hmm. with this period that we also call the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason, right? where new concepts of the person and the self, but also of science and the world and nature Mm -hmm. were being born. And uh, you know, Federici is far from the only person to have talked about this connection, sure. but it's basically like the thesis of this chapter that we that we've been leading up to for this whole time <laughs> that we've been talking so far. The thesis of this chapter is that the philosophies that were put forth in the Enlightenment slash the Age of Reason can be read as fulfilling the needs of the emerging bourgeoisie, the capitalist class, mm-hmm. to create a new kind of model Mm -hmm. to fit humans into that would be more compatible with the work machine. And so the rest of the chapter is a closer examination of that idea. Right.
One of the things that emerged in this time period was an obsession with the body and an obsession with studying the body and studying the body not as the repository of and the source of vital and occult powers, but studying the body as a machine or as a thing as a thing put together like a machine uh-huh. that is capable of doing work. What once had been a house of pleasure in yes. <laughs> the senses was now for work. And this is, you can maybe already intuit in this, a step towards the direction of like rationalist, reductionist science, of which, you know, this period of the age of reason and the age of enlightenment is leading us towards more modern conceptions of science where nature is not a place that's full of magic, but is populated by crude matter. Resources to be extracted. Yeah, crude matter, resources to be extracted, operating kind of mechanically. Mm -hmm. In fact, Federici refers to what's called the mechanical philosophy as something that had a heyday in the time period that she's describing here. And that is the tendency to view, or not just a tendency, but like an enthusiasm, an enthusiasm for viewing nature in mechanical terms. And so people wanted to understand like the engine of the human body and to understand how it was made up by analogy to the machines that were being constructed by the uh, inventors in the capitalist system at that same time period, like levers and watches and various other um, labor-performing machines, the body was investigated in those terms. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, she she populates the pages of this section of the chapter with, with a lot of quotes and references um, by people just frankly describing the human body in mechanical terms, mm-hmm. the heart is but a spring. Right. <laughs> is one. Where, yeah, like the motive power of the heart, its power to propel the blood um, in a pump like fashion is likened as to like a wound up spring that discharges its energy due to uh, crude physics or something. And Rene Descartes, the French philosopher who we're going to speak of at greater length later, has a quote in one of the footnotes here where he just comes out and says like that the body is nothing other than a watch or other type of automaton that has moving parts in relationship to one another and is a moving being in the world until it's not, mm-hmm. until it runs out of power to work its gears, basically, and then it's expended. And so, like, the point is that you don't need any more kinds of knowledge to understand the human body than you need to understand a machine, Mm -hmm. a man-made machine. And more than that, they were really wanting to make the body into a machine, Mm -hmm. seeking to understand it like you would understand a machine, because that was the aspiration, was the proletarian body as a machine. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's this great, I'm reminded of this great sentence of Federici's here on 146, where she says, we can see, in other words, that the human body and not the steam engine and not even the clock was the first machine developed by capitalism. Right. Ouch. Yeah. And so what comes next 
is like actually studying the body to learn about its machine-like components and how they work together. <laughs> and this would involve, in this time period, dissection of cadavers. Right. Yeah. It's almost like now that the body was declared a dead machine thing, it became like a new territory to explore. Yeah. Not that there hadn't been already like some science of both dissection and vivisection in the classical medical time. Right. But there had been not so much in Europe since then, from what I understand from medical history. And there was kind of a taboo. Right. About, about opening it. Desecrating dead bodies right. and opening them in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. But now that the change in philosophy was, and I guess the change in almost like spiritual worldview was shifting the body to be an inert thing, then that made space for there to be anatomical dissection and actual opening up of the bodies. And this would be done in big amphitheaters. I mean, not like a football stadium, but, you know, like a big theater. They made a spectacle. They made a spectacle out of it. And then, and, and what's most important here is these bodies were supplied by the people who were executed or from the very, very poor that ended up, that didn't have people to collect the body and bury them. So mm -hmm. you had anyone who was hung on the gallows knew that it was very possible that their body might be prey to anatomical dissection in front of a large group of people as the scientific medical class attempted to learn more and more about the parts of this new machine that they were thinking about. And um, this was really disturbing. Obviously, I think most of us can feel how it's bad enough to be executed often for just trying to survive outside the system, but then also to know that your body was going to be cut up and not given back to your loved ones, that your that your descendants and friends and family were not going to be able to take your body and give it the correct rights. Mm -hmm. uh, that's true. It's disturbing. And people fought back about this pretty hard. There were actually some riots and insurrections connected to the theft of bodies for surgical ex exploration. Yes, yeah, she mentions that in here, a couple examples of uh, where the surgeons were trying to take a body away to get to cut it open and then but the loved ones of the deceased person were raising hell because mm -hmm. they didn't consent to it right you know but it, it was necessary right. uh, uh for this like ongoing for medical progress medical progress right. something these bodies were being stolen from people but there was resistance to this she also talked about how in some cases some people's life sentence would be changed to the death penalty if there was a need for a body right then yeah, right. You know, so <laughs> that's all really upsetting. And that was happening this whole time. So not only are there a record amount of executions happening, but these bodies were being fed into the surgical machine. It's so fitting that there was resistance to oh, sure. these practices of dissection. The people who were resisting, they didn't even know what a degraded sense of the body was being composed, mm -hmm. you know, by the people who were participating in these dissections and inventing these mechanical ideas of the body. It wasn't even that that they were resisting exactly, mm -hmm. except that they were. Right. Indirectly, you know, because they were, they were resisting the idea that a body could be desecrated mm -hmm. so wantonly and snatched from its right relation with the people to whom that body was related mm -hmm. and to the earth from which it sprang and just be submitted to the process of the accumulation of knowledge of dead things, mm -hmm. you know? 
And then a lot of cultures and definitely some of the different belief systems impacted by this process here, people would think if there wasn't correct burial and rites, then that spirit would not move on and transition and would be uneasy. This is not in the book. I'm just saying this from personal research. Mm-hmm. Um, but that the idea that this loved one would actually be um, an uneasy spirit and a restless spirit that would be not able to move on because they hadn't had the correct rites performed for them. Mm-hmm. That's a really hard thing. It's hard enough to watch a loved one be executed for trying to survive mm-hmm. in a cruel culture. And then to also think that their spirit would not be at rest afterwards because they were going to be used for medical examination. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's really sad. I want to add to this. I kept thinking when reading this part about the dissection about a book called Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington. And it's about the racist history and contemporary practice of medicine in this country and the way that African-Americans have always been used as subjects for study and experiment, but are often denied access to care that has been developed on their bodies, either through cells like Henrietta Lacks, um, but also through procedures. And I'm not going to go into a lot of that here, but we'll link to that book. It's definitely a really important read. She's an amazing historian. Mm -hmm. Um, And I recommend that. But she talks at length in there about how the bodies that were used to supply the medical schools in the United States were almost entirely taken from enslaved Africans and enslaved African-Americans. And actually, during the time period when there was a big global surge in knowledge around surgery and, um, I guess, just like an advance in that in that form of medicine, the United States actually pulled up ahead of Europe because they had more access to bodies at that point mm-hmm. during the late 1700s, early 1800s, because they had unlimited access to the bodies of enslaved Africans and African-Americans. Yeah. And so there were a ton of med schools in the South, in the southern southeastern U.S. because of that. That's where the med schools were often. And the ones that were up north actually got bodies shipped up from the South. So she goes into detail there, and I'm pointing this out partially to say what was being developed in this time period in England and in Western Europe as we mentioned earlier, there can be technologies that go back and forth mm-hmm. the, between the colonies and the colonizer lands. And this is very much one that was developed. The dissection of the poor or the enslaved began in England and then was exported to the colonies and then continued to be right. uh, practiced there and actually flourished and went on for much longer in the United States because of the institution of slavery. Right. Mm-hmm. And in the... During that time period, there was also quite a bit of resistance and fighting back amongst the people impacted by that practice in the Southeast. So Africans and African-Americans fought hard to protect the bodies of their loved ones, but were often still denied peace or death rights, which if you know anything about African traditional religions, like that is really disturbing in those in that spiritual practice. Yeah. Well, and interestingly, the more that they learned about and the more that they learned unknown before ideas about the body by cutting them up and examining them, the more it seemed to be that they became disgusted by them. They're simultaneously obsessed by the bodies, but also became 
develops quite an aversion to the body because it became a separate part of you within this time period. Again, just to show like what the shift was, I don't know if anybody's read medieval literature at all, but it's very body. There's a lot of farting and sex and poop and like mm-hmm. the body's just part of the story. Yeah. And it's and it's comic relief and it's not um there's not distance or distaste, mm-hmm. you know? But we see a big shift here right. where people become when they start to feel separate from their bodies. Mm-hmm. And also, as we're gonna get into more later, identify body with other so lower class other races that aren't white and women and women right then once the body becomes degraded in this way and there's this distance and there's more of a distaste you know yeah yeah there's this weird duality where there was a striving to be able to achieve the body as a machine which is a a clean type of body you know no waste you take off the back of a watch and it's just this fascinating arrangement of clockwork parts. There's no goo. There's no dust. There's no foul smells. Mm-hmm. And that was the dream of the body, the mechanistic utopia of the body. But the actual body was something that was increasingly becoming more disgusting for its failure to live up mm-hmm. right. to that kind of mm-hmm. clockwork perfection and cleanliness. Mm-hmm. The pinnacle of this would be the kind of Victorian middle class world of manners mm-hmm. where, oh, now like you don't ever touch your food when you're eating it because there is an implement for every way that you could eat. Mm-hmm. And and multiple forks for different courses. Multiple forks for different courses, you know, and you like excuse yourself to pass gas and you're kind of revolted by yourself if you do. Mm-hmm. And you don't talk about sex. And you don't appear naked to anybody, maybe not even your family. And this whole revulsion for the body, really, the, the Protestants, some of them, especially the Puritans, really ran with that. Uh, we're definitely still reeling from that over here in the United States. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's like a pretty funny quote from Cotton Mather, who was... A famous Puritan. A famous Puritan. Theologian. Yeah. And uh, he was at the... Massachusetts Bay Colony. Massachusetts yeah. Bay Colony. That's what I was trying to remember. Right, right, right. Um, so, like, one of the more famous Puritan theorists and theologians here, um, he had this very colonial-sounding quote where he, like, is peeing on the side of a wall or something, and then he looks over and sees a dog peeing, too, and he's so disgusted that they both pee, yeah. that they both have to urinate these base, base functions that he was just disgusted by his own filth and baseness in the world. He's like, I'm just like a dog, reminded of his commonality with with a beast right and so he said something like he would have every he resolved himself that every time he had to do some baser function assuming like shit or piss or who knows maybe occasionally procreate have procreation occasionally when forced to um then he would make sure to do some angelic act or have an angelic thought afterwards to counter the bestial act yeah that's what this country's founded on right there (laughs) uh So anyway, yeah, I mean, we come back to this paradox where at once the body is looked down upon, the body is degraded, the body is filth, the body is bestial, but you can't do away with the body. Mm -hmm. The bourgeoisie can't just reject the body Mm -hmm. because they fucking need the body. They need the body to weave the wool, you know, they need the body to load the ships, they need the body, you know, and so... The body is degraded 
but at the same time, the body is the source of all wealth or like those people's bodies, Mm -hmm. the workers' bodies are the source of all wealth. And so, yeah, the question, I mean, even if they succeeded in taking the body apart and understanding it as this like clockwork assemblage of levers and springs, um, then the question still becomes how to get it to work. Right. Yeah, I mentioned earlier how certain philosophers stepped up to fill this gap (laughs) to provide the theory that would explain the process or justify the process. Mm -hmm. And the two that she spends most of the chapter with are Thomas Hobbes and and Rene Descartes. And both of them had a conception of the body that was mechanical, but they drew different implications from their ideas about the mechanical body. Hobbes thought that basically each of us is just a machine. There is no material soul. Everything about a person is brute instinct and reflex that we are mechanical. There's no soul that is floating up out of that. Or Sometimes it comes across as more animal. Yeah, almost animal. Mechanical. Right. Yes, for sure. And he basically thought that uh, each of us, these brute instinctual creatures, were only capable of moving through the world in self-interest trying to dominate other people, every man for himself, basically. And mm-hmm. he, it's called like the war of all against all. Is that how he put it? Yeah, that like in the absence of some kind of imposed structure, right. then human society, it wouldn't even be society. Right. It would instead culminate in this war of all against all as the brutes that we are would be seeking to dominate each other. Right. One thing that I think is really funny, and I'm going to bring up, some contemporary people who do this as well but one thing these philosophers did not do ever was stay in their lane as we say (laughs) Uh, so Hobbes would would feel like it was appropriate to be like you know what I'm also going to tell you what paleo society was like you know he could he really felt like he had a good point of view to just kind of explain everything he could play the anthropologist too right Uh uh-huh paleo anthropologist Mm -hmm. Uh, but he basically thought that before there was strong very strong government that people just like lived brutally hurt each other and dominated each other and it was just like the strongest person won he said our lives were brutish nasty and short before government what hobbes was positing during this time period was that if we did not have an iron-fisted state apparatus, we would all just kill each other in self-interest. Or we would just fight and dominate each other and nothing good or productive would happen and this society would not flow very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hobbes' project was to rationalize a strong authoritarian state right. that could impose the level of social control like hard control necessary to keep people from each other's throats Mm-hmm. and to press them into productive labor instead. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So before I get to criticism of his time period, because some people had a lot of trouble with this part of Hobbes, but not for the reasons we might have trouble with this thought, I just wanted to say that this kind of thinking, where you have a goal and then you create a whole explanation for how life works and how humans work to meet that goal, which is... I think we need a strong state. I'm going to create a whole worldview to explain why. He was doing that from a philosophy perspective. We now see people doing that more and more in the name of, quote, 
objective science as well. And I think it is important to recognize that. And a couple people I can think of right away are Richard Dawkins, who hypothesized the selfish gene, which people still totally buy into as the primary explanation for how life works. Uh, And when people point out at all that Richard Dawkins is being an individualist who has been really affected by the competitive concepts of capitalism, he basically dismisses them as commies and say that he knows what's up and everyone else is politically delusional, which seems like a very Hobbesian move to me. And then I would also add that Jared Diamond, his whole, which, you know, he is a he moved from talking about uh, biological diversity within birds, especially, and island ecosystems, to just talking about humans as a whole and the theories of human theories, culture, theories of human culture, human societies, and yeah. And he moved into that world, which maybe that's also a Hobbesian move here. I'm saying mm. his most famous book is Guns, Germs, and Steel. Right, Jared Diamond, yeah. Guns, Germs, and Steel, and he basically is which taking. Is- pitched as like an explanation for why Europe came to dominate the world. Right. And he, in my view, is basically taking Hobbes's individual theory, theory of the individual, and applying it to whole societies. He's saying all cultures will dominate other cultures if they just have the right tools and the mm-hmm. right forces are supporting them, mm-hmm. like the germs in that case. Um, and so a lot of indigenous critique of Jared Diamond is, who are you to say what people will do and not do? We weren't doing that before Europeans showed up. Right. And how dare you conflate us with our colonizers? Uh, and I point those guys out just to say that this style of creating a theory to explain everything that justifies domination and violence is still alive and well. Yeah. And it's being practiced sometimes under the name of genetic science. Right. You know, you're making me, listening to you talk is making me feel self-conscious because I'm wondering now if I've created theories of the world that are suspiciously in line with the way that I would like life to be. (laughs) Yeah, you might have less power. That's probably true, though. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I got to think about that one a little more. Oh, yeah. I was going to talk about criticism of Hobbes at the time. People really did not like Hobbes' theory implying that people didn't have free will or agency, especially in this Enlightenment era where they were trying to develop government that was based on representative democracy or electing leaders at this time when people were moving towards at least the people theorizing these this new world. Mm-hmm. Thought they were moving and progressing towards more participation and enlightened subjects. Right. During that time, they really didn't want this idea to hold sway that each of us is just instinct and reflex. And so they, Pob's main criticism at the time was that he did not allow for free will and did not allow for agency. And what's interesting about this is that those critics saw that what really needs to happen for the capitalist system to be put in place and to work was to be able to convince the individual of the system's rightness and to actually put the system in place in their minds. Mm-hmm. Also, I kind of want to say in here that part of, yeah, because as Janet's saying, when Hobbes came out with this stuff where he was like, so people are scum and so we need to have an iron-fisted state to like pound people into line mm-hmm. and it'll be what's good for them, you know, but they're going to 
be kicking and screaming the whole way, but this is just what we need to do and let's get the machines running. It was actually scandalous at the time. <laughs> and Federici points out like Hobbes never actually got inducted into the Royal Society, which he always wanted to do. You know, he was not praised for thinking this way, but I feel like part of it too is don't say it out loud. Don't say that so loud, you know. Don't show the cards. <laughs> yeah. Like that might be necessary, but we're not going to put that out there as this is the society that we're creating. Please sign up. Mm -hmm. I guess the 21st century term for that would be like bad optics. Right. So in some ways, this other faction of Enlightenment thinkers had had a more nuanced kind of touchy-feely way of thinking about the brave new world that they were trying to shepherd us all into. And they were concerned partially with ideas like freedom and agency and autonomy. Their self-interest was in that because they were trying to create freedom for themselves. Right. And they were trying to carve out a space of free action to where they could not be subject to the dictates of old school royalty and aristocracy. Right. And so individualism and freedom, and I mean, freedom in this sense is exactly the same sense that is in like the Declaration of Independence and all of like the foundational myths of the United States. It's that exact same idea of freedom was becoming a concern of these guys. I think it's important here, too, that we remember that when these people were hypothesizing freedom and agency for the individual, the individual they had in mind was a white man of the owner class yeah. and the pro property owners. And that's how the United States was founded. Yeah. They eventually expanded the boat a bit. Mm -hmm. But at first, you were you had to be a property owning male, mm -hmm. white male to, to vote at all. Yeah. And that was supposed to be a real democracy. Yeah. Because those of us, everyone else who's closer to the bestial, which is what their conception was, the rest of us are not worthy to have any say because we're too close to the animal. Mm -hmm. Whether that's working class folks, women, and people who aren't white. Right. Yeah. So even though the state definitely does rule by force and coercion, Hobbes's ideas were kind of rejected as maybe too radical or too radically authoritarian for the day. But we can see now as things would develop that his vision would become incorporated. Mm -hmm. Not solely, it wouldn't be just an entirely Hobbesian vision, mm -hmm. but Hobbes's idea of society would become part of the evolving synthesis that would lead towards the capitalist forms of governance that would come out of this. Yeah, and interestingly, the philosopher who countered some of Hobbes' suppositions around the soul or the absence of one, the main one that people really rallied behind who gave them the mechanical body but free will, which is what they wanted, um, was R <laughs> Rene Descartes. Uh, Descartes, who probably most of you, if you know one thing about Descartes, you probably know that he said, I think, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. uh, that's like a few words that speaks to a giant philosophy of the separation of the mind and the body, really codified in a way that we're still dealing with very much today. He thought that the body was a machine. He was one that really enjoyed going to see dissections and vivisection and perform some of his own. 
but he saw the body as sort of a mechanical house for the soul. He was absolutely a Christian and he believed in an immaterial soul that did not emerge from the body, but that was housed within the body. One thing I think that's interesting about his way of going about to prove this, as I mentioned already, he liked to go to dissections and and he would perform some vivisection on his own. But in his pursuit of showing that animals didn't have souls, but that humans did have souls, he performed vivisection on live animals. And I just think it's so ironic that to prove that a dog didn't have a soul, he would cut them up, which to me proves that he is maybe the one more in question of having a soul. You know? (laughs) But he's like, let me see how cold and heartless I can be and ignoring of others' pain in my pursuit of deciding that I have a soul. And they don't. Uh, He definitely thought that all other animals did not, besides, well, he didn't think of humans as animals, but I'm going to say Descartes thought that all other animals couldn't feel pain because they didn't have minds. And uh, that is another interesting concept that would bleed over into the colonial and post-colonial slavery system in the U.S. When I was mentioning that white doctors would do experiments on enslaved Africans and African-Americans, they also wrote that these people did not feel pain because they were seen as closer to animal. Mm -hmm. So the farther you were from the rich white man, the less likely you could feel pain because the more like an animal you were. Right. And I'm presumably, I don't know if they thought these people had souls or not. Yeah, I think it was debated. Right. Probably so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So Descartes basically set set about in describing individuals as machines holding a soul And he saw that the means to control individuals and the society was by teaching forms of self-management and self-control. And here is where we see the really genius theory that's going to go into the formation and enforcement of capitalism. Because if you can get individuals to take on the structures of control inside their minds then you don't have to use force. One way I think about that is what you are able to do is to put the bars behind the eyes. So if we're policing ourselves and our own behavior in the idea of being more human or a better person and less of an animal, then they don't have to do as much to control us. And I was thinking a lot about this part and the ways that this concept of self-management has self-mastery self-mastery has really taken off and flourished in this whole new way you know in the past century and that you know say in the 60s and 70s you had like the human potential movement and all of these different little sex and inspirational speakers who would be all about Mm self-actualization and each person's ability to just do their best you know always the individual always separate from others Mm -hmm. often about making money or doing better at your job, you yeah. know? Yeah. There's this whole industry around that that you see going even further today. Like, it's just blowing up with right. podcasts and books. and Yeah, and the language is actually very Cartesian. It'll be, yeah. like, about harnessing your potential. Right. Like, the mind gets a hold of practices, and sometimes they're mind-body practices, mm-hmm. you know, where the mind enlists the body in these practices that are supposed to increase the productivity of the machine. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Like whether that's going to the gym mm-hmm. or 
I mean, even mindfulness exercises can be actually pitched in a way to make you more productive at work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, there are right. many, many strategies that were originally used for enlightenment or mm-hmm. personal spiritual practice now being used for capitalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? This mind-body split Cartesian dualism mm-hmm. is still, it just runs right through the middle of us. It really does. Yeah. I mean, I've been rejecting of this since I first started being critical of it and learning about it back when I was 19 or something, you know, so this is a long time ago, but I still, I feel the effects of it every day. Right. It gets kind of sensitive and hard because what we're talking about, although like we can kind of scoff and laugh as we have been throughout this conversation about this kind of person that they were trying to create, it has to some measure succeeded. Mm-hmm. As the generations have gone by and capitalism has progressed and we've become progressively indoctrinated into capitalist Mm -hmm. and Cartesian values and enlightenment worldview over the generations, like it actually has to some extent formed the people we've become. Absolutely. And this is where it gets chilling, where it's more than just about kind of laughing off the schemes of the rich. They drove people off their land they captured people and enslaved them. These are exploitative activities in the physical world. Mm -hmm. But this is this other level where it reaches into us Mm -hmm. and has a material effect on our bodies and who we are and what we're capable of. It's like actually landing in the flesh. Mm -hmm. We are made differently because of this now. I mean, he's there's a famous Descartes quote that he says, I am not this body. And I just think about how many people feel that way. Apparently, he says it throughout one of his books. Oh, he says it over and over? Yeah. It's good. It's like a refrain (laughs) that he keeps coming back to. Right. I think that that's something I hear all of the time from clients and friends who have thought, I've probably thought that myself, Mm -hmm. you know, like how many of us have really, Mm -hmm. really embraced without meaning to that concept. Um, and I'm not just talking about dysphoria, you know, I'm talking about just like feeling like we're weird, what lives inside this other thing, mm-hmm. you know? We tried to, re- we try to repair this as much as we can in the work that we do mm-hmm. and in the way that we talk about the body, the body and the mind and manifestations of health and disease in the work that we do as herbalists, but it's hard and it feels like we don't even have words. Mm-hmm to talk about it differently. And I think our language is impoverished in a way that doesn't allow for it. Right. For sure. Yeah. I want to say too that, so this, the mind-body dualism is one of several important weighted dualisms that come about at this time. And as she points out, mind and body is very much a master-slave relationship. Like you are really your mind and you're trying to control this body that is the slave. The exact framework maps over to the way that man and nature would become a duality in this time period. And just in the same way that the body was deemed dead and inert matter, the rest of the world, the rest of the planet was also deemed dead and inert. And so just as the human body was being carved up and examined and taken apart, so was the landscape. Extractive practices really took off during this time period, mining and industrial fishing and whaling, Mm -hmm. and um, including the extraction of labor power, you know, Mm -hmm. within that as part of the the, Mm -hmm. nature as well, I would Mm -hmm. say. 
but that man nature is another one, man woman. And there's just this, all of these dualism came to the forefront during this time period in what was called the age of reason, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And those dualisms are so defining our life even today. Right. And always there's one term that is being rendered lacking in agency and valuable only to the extent that it can have something extracted from it. Mm-hmm. Right. You know. And I mean, I think that what I want to come back to here, because this has been a hard chapter to talk about, is that we are very much still in a world li- that is defined by this split and that we should be thinking about the ways that technology dominates our lives in the way that it governs our discourse with each other, the ways that it sort of oversees connections and sometimes even dominates what community might look like for some people. We need to think about those, that technology reinforcing the split by reinforcing disembodiment. Mm -hmm. And if we're actually going to try and heal this split if we have a chance of actually turning things around, we're going to be needing to spend more and more time being embodied and working to actually fight alienation and isolation by spending time in the flesh with each other. Yeah, that's good. That seems like a good place to leave off, I think. As good as any, I guess. There's a lot more that we could talk about in this chapter, and if you are reading the book, or if you have it, I do encourage you to read through this chapter. There's like a lot of quotes and good ways of putting things that Federici has in here that I've underlined that we just don't have time to go through at all. And it's a short chapter. It's only like 20 pages. Mm -hmm. The next one is bigger. It is bigger and it's rough. The next chapter is uh, arguably like the centerpiece of the book, Mm -hmm. The Great Witch Hunt in Europe. This is chapter four in which we really focus in on the witch trials and the witch hunts and Federici presents her novel thesis about the function of the witch hunts in Europe Mm -hmm. and in the rise of capitalism. Mm -hmm. So we are going to be going back over that chapter in preparation for next time's discussion. But until then, be well out there. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Federici talks about this aspect of March and this this Federici talks about this aspect of March. Federici <laughs> It is March it is and March. March. <laughs>